You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. What is man that you are mindful of him? There is perhaps no single more important question that you could possibly ask. What is man? What does it mean to be human? What is it about humans that makes us distinct from, say, animals or computers or trees? This is a really important question because it shapes everything else that you do or say or think. It shapes how you def- what, you, what you mean by words like freedom, what you mean by words like dignity, what you mean by words like equality. Everything that we mean for ourselves, for our neighbors, for society, all of it flows from this basic conviction about what it means to be human. And so before we dive into the Bible's answer to this question, I want to take a moment to survey some of the answers that are bouncing around in your heads. Answers that you have gotten from the long history of the West, the history of, from media and from consumer culture around you. The one I want to start with is the most classical one, which is that to be human is to be a reasoning animal. That is, to be a speaking human being. This is the answer of the Greeks, Plato and Aristotle. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Why? Because if you don't examine your life, then you're really not acting any more differently than a dog, right? The ability to think, to examine yourself as a self, as a human being, as a part of the world, that was part of what it meant to be human. That was part of human dignity. Pascal, a French Catholic philosopher, put it this way. He was meditating on human weakness and frailty. And he said, a human being is only a reed, the weakest in nature, but he is a thinking reed. To crush him, the whole universe does not have to arm itself. A mist, a drop of water is enough to kill him. But if the universe were to crush this reed, man would be nobler than his killer, since he knows that he is dying and that the universe has this advantage over him. But the universe knows nothing of this. Now, the idea that human beings are thinking beings has been, been judged as a little too pompous by some. Darwin thought that we were a little too, uh, we estimated ourselves a little too highly. Humans aren't fundamentally different from animals, and reason isn't a different qualitative thing. It's just a really well-developed thing that all animals have. And so humans are more highly developed primates with biological and technological advantages that give us the impression that we are different species, but really we're just pompous, overdeveloped chimpanzees. Karl Marx saw it a little differently. He said humanity is defined by its ability to work. Uh, it is, humans are economic animals. So to, to be a human was either to be a laborer who produces things or to be an owner who parasitically owns those things that means a production. And so to be human was to be locked in a state of conflict and strife between oppressor and oppressed. Freud thought it was a little differently. He said, no, man is a sexual animal. He's defined by his primal urges and impulses and complexes that demand fulfillment in the bodies of others. And if, since civilization is not one big uh, gratification time, it has to be, people have to learn to restrain themselves. So to be human is to be defined by desire and discontent because you've had to learn to restrain that desire to get along with others. Politicians of the Confederacy They saw being human as being racially stratified. To be human was to be white. 
And that means that equality or freedom to be for, for humans depended on the subordination of other races. This is the view of human nature they wrote into their constitution when they enshrined owning a slave as a human right. You can only make slavery a human right if you believe that humans need slaves by virtue of being human. This was the definition of humanity that they fought for. This is their heritage. Now, Nietzsche saw it a little differently. He said there is no such thing as human nature. Humans are always in development. So what we need to do is courageously accept that there's no one way to be human. And thereby, we can transcend and create our own definition, create our own values, our own meaning out of the sheer strength of our will. We make ourselves what we want to be. And that brings us real close to probably the most pervasive sense of what it means to be human in our culture. And that is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, that is to be a self, is to be a unique individual who has your own unique gifts and interests and hobbies and talents and identities and skills. And to be fully human, to be free, you need to be free to explore and, and identify yourself as distinct from those around you. To find your skills and abilities. This, this is, it's fun to see how these views of, of humanity get worked into the culture. And, and one I think is, is worth, uh, worth reflecting on is a recent Pixar movie called Soul. Have any of you seen this? Wow. No one in Messiah had seen it either. Oh, okay, 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 okay good. This is, a, this is an excellent mythology of the modern self. And you should go see it and watch it as a mythology of the modern self because it tells us how humans, how moderns like to think of themselves as humans and what it means to be human. In the story, uh, a pianist from New York, he is, just gets his, his breakthrough. He's going to his, his audition he's been waiting for for his whole life and he falls into a manhole and dies. And he's not ready to die yet, right? So, and he's on his way. The souls in the afterlife are on their way to the great beyond. He's freaking out. He's, he doesn't want to die yet. And he jumps off the track and falls into this nursery of, of pre-existent souls. And that is, this is the place where souls are formed before creation, and then they're sent to earth to live out their human lives. And, and, and what's fascinating about the movie is, is how these souls are formed. Because these are little genderless, bodiless souls that are, that are programmed with various personality traits, various apathies, various interests. They, they get to go through these halls where they see all the various hobbies and activities they might do as human beings. And they do this until they find their spark, their, their thing that makes them them. And once they've found this, they're, they're ready to go to earth. And they are sent to earth where they, through the trauma of birth, forget uh, forget all the, the pre-programming they had, and then they live out a human life of trying to learn who they are and discover themselves, right? And here's what's, what's so, so important and so characteristically modern and American about this. Their unique, each soul's unique individual identity is formed without any connection to or regard for their family, their culture, their community, their body, you're pre-programmed as a unique individual soul, and none of that stuff matters. So you learning to be yourself is you inhabiting a body which may help you or may restrain you from discovering yourself. You being part of a community that may help you or may restrain you from being fully human. Because to be a truly fully human, you are a unique immaterial soul. Now I mention all of these because all of these accounts of being human take aspects of the Genesis account and either amplify them or pervert them and twist them 
and destroy them. And they take some aspect of this Genesis account and they turn it into something far more, well, sometimes horrifying, but far less rich and far less beautiful than the biblical account of humanity. So two weeks ago, we started this series and we talked about the main character of the Bible, God, who creates in love and who's, who is eternal community and desires to live and share that community with others. So he creates a world that is a temple in which he can dwell with human beings. And we met at the end of this six-day journey or seven-day journey, uh, image bearers, his idols of himself, the people who reflect his image that he makes, male and female. And as we now turn to chapter two, we're going to look at what sometimes people think of as a second creation account. And really, it's just kind of a zooming in and an expansion, a poetic expansion of what goes on on day six. But it tells us and amplifies us a little bit more deeply what it means to be human, what it means to be an image bearer. So as we dive into this, I want to offer an apology and a not apology. Um, We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into this. And this is going to be a little demanding. But here's my promise to you. Everything we explore is not you learning what it means, just you learning what it means to be human. It's you learning a little bit more about Jesus. Every beautiful thing we see in in chapter 2 is something that shows us the beauty of the Lord. And that's worth reflecting on. And that's worth devoting our attention to. So, first thing, the image of God is a twofold representative function. It is not a, um, a representative function. That is, it, it, we operate on behalf of another. Think about your representative in Congress or in the state assembly, right? They don't necessarily look like you. They're not a representation of you. They don't, it's not like you pick someone who, who looks like everyone who lives here. No, you pick someone who thinks that way and can represent you and exercise authority on your behalf. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. It means you exercise authority on God's behalf. You have a functional calling. It doesn't mean that you are a representation of God, that you look like him in a physical way. It means you act with authority on his behalf. You are a representative. And this works in two different ways. And I should have labeled these as such, but the first one is in a royal capacity, a royal function, to image God's creative power over creation. In the image of God, he creates them, And then says, have dominion, rule over every living thing. All right? So first of all, dominion is not domination. It is not subjecting all things to what we want it to be. It is doing what God did. Creating order and meaning so that life can flourish. And so human beings are called to keep moving creation forward from its original state, creating more order, more meaning like families, like cultures, like art, like architecture, to move creation forward by exercising power on God's behalf. God uses human beings to do stuff and carry his creation forward. That's our royal function as image bearers. The other one is our priestly function, and we talked to the kids about this. That is to mediate creation back to God. And I'm going to briefly sum this up. We have to get the idea that Genesis 2, in Genesis 2, notice he creates man and then he plants a garden called Eden. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff about rivers coming out and gold and, and trees everywhere. But what's important to recognize is that Eden is a holy of holies within the temple of creation. That is, it's a specific place where God dwells immediately with his human beings. So like the temple, if you, if you know a little bit about Israel's temple, there were like layers where Gentiles could come into one court and then men into another. And then there was the inner chamber and then the holy of holies where God's presence dwelt. That's Eden. And there's a whole bunch of, the whole rivers coming out of it. That's because in the end times temple, there's supposed to be rivers coming out of the temple watering the earth. And the whole gold is because the whole temple is kind of surrounded with gold. So the the temple in Israel 
And the, the temple of all, is supposed to reflect Eden and its glory over creation. So like, if you're going to have this holy of holies, well, what do you need inside a temple? You need a priest. You need someone to or, operate the, the, the temple on behalf of God. That is what humans do. He plants the man in the garden to till, work it and to keep it. In, order, in other words, to make the temple fit for God's presence. To make it fit for God's presence. And what's important here is that it's, it's God's royal presence. A garden, when you picture this, I think I've said this about a dozen times, so I know, I know some people are tired of hearing this. But the Garden of Eden was not an uncultivated wilderness. Your children's Bible, which has a picture of like Adam and Eve wandering around in a jungle, that's not what the Bible says. The word garden is a specific word for what we know of as a garden. That is boxes, walls, fences, cult- intentionally cultivated land. And in the ancient world, a garden was something normally a king would have, a part of his palace where he'd build a walled garden, bring in a whole bunch of exotic plants from all the lands he conquered, and showcase these unique animals and things. That's what Eden is. It's a royal garden in which God can dwell, and humans are made to prepare it for God's presence. That's what it's for. And this is also part of why he made us out of the stuff of the garden, dirt. Adam is created out of dirt, out of dust of the ground. He's Adam from the Adama. So he is dirt at prayer, dirt at creativity. What it means to be human, first of all, is to be part of this world, to be part of this world, not to be an immaterial soul, like Soul, the movie, who gets sent down to a body, but you are a body. That's what you are. It's not something you have, it's something you are. You are a body with life breathed into you by God to do his will of bearing his image. Okay, so now let's look a little more deeply. Bearing God's image involves leading creation to God in faithful, obedient praise. This is number two, faithful, obedient praise. This is why God makes in the center of the garden trees, two trees. The Lord God commanded the man saying, well, sorry, he puts the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in the center. And the Lord God commands the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. These two trees right at the center, these mediate Adam's relationship to God. Why? He gives him the tree of life to eat, to take that stuff into his body and convert it into praise of God, praise that, and faithful obedience. That is, when God says, don't eat from this one tree, I trust him. I trust God by not eating from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I obey him by not eating from this tree. Martin Luther says that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is Adam's church. It's where Adam goes to obey God's word. And the idea here, what we get is the basic plot of the Bible. Are these image bearers going to obey God's word or not? And next week, we will find out how they do not. Will human beings abide by this joyful calling of offering to God praise on behalf of all creation and exercising the tremendous dignity and responsibility they've been given? So these are the two trees that are going to do that, and we'll come back to them next week. But this tremendous dignity and responsibility is exercised in other ways. This is number three. Bearing God's image involves participating in God's creative freedom through speech. God's creative freedom through speech. To remind you guys, last week, God creates out of speech, let there be light, and it was so, right? And then God names the light, day, and the darkness, night. God creates out of speech, that is, simply in the sheer freedom of his will, he speaks it into being. 
And notice how God gives to humans the chance to mirror, to image, and reflect that creative freedom. This is like my favorite verse in the whole chapter. Now, out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field. This is 219. Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Think about that for a second. God brought the critters to the man to see what he would call them. Does that mean God doesn't know what he would call them? Well, in one sense, no, eternally God knows what animals are going to get named. But in another sense, no, the story says what it says. The story wants you to see that God gives and carves out a space for Adam's creative freedom to call cats cats and not say socks. But if, he, if, we'd had, if Adam had chosen to call cats socks, that's what we'd all call them. Because the text says he names them and that's what they are. This points us to deep mysteries about the nature of language and the nature of speech, and I will spare you those. But it tells us the immense dignity and privilege that Adam is given in participating in God's creation. He creates words. He creates names. He creates meaning and identity in giving these animals name. Because human beings were made to image the God who creates in freedom. And that brings us to another really cool part of this text, which is why he's having to name creatures in the first place. And that's 2.18. God says, it is not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. But think about what the setting is at this time. It's Adam and God. So Adam's with God, and yet he's alone. And that's not good. This is the only thing that's not good before the fall. Everything else, days of the creation, this was good, it was good, it was good. It is not good that Adam be alone. Why is this? Well, man was never meant to be an alone individual with God. We were meant to be with God in community. We were made for a relationship with God that was a relationship with a whole community because we bear God's image together. Male and female, he created them in his image. And so this gives us this weird story of God bringing the animals to Adam. And sometimes people portray this as like God's like a three-year-old with blocks trying to jam them into the different shapes, trying, well, let's try donkeys. Nope, that doesn't fit. Camels, nope, that doesn't fit. No, God's not doing this because he's trial and error. He's doing this to show Adam something so that Adam can come to do something that is distinct. He can recognize a fellow image bearer. That's the end result. He finally brings him a woman, and Adam says, this at last, I see it now. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called Isha, because she was created out of Ish. Why? Because bearing God's image means recognizing that you aren't the only one to bear God's image, that no one bears God's image alone. Bearing God's image involves recognizing God's image in others. And this recognition is so incredibly important. It's part of knowing. It's part of speaking. It's part of embracing the other. Adam was, must know that he was not designed for himself alone, not even for God alone, but he was designed to embrace another human being in love, his helper, his fellow image bearer. And the whole story of marriage is summed up right here in this moment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is, I was told once, someone that had gone to church their whole life, and they had never heard in church the pastor talk about sex. And this just strikes me as ludicrous, because the Bible can't get past the second chapter without talking about sex. Because sex and marriage are not kind of an afterthought that God jammed into a world when it broke. They are part of the foundation of the way God creates. 
about the way human beings experience and participate in his love. Man, God makes them male and female, and the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This has immense implications for how we see human relationships and how we see sexuality. But most basically, this is the way human beings image God's love for his created world. This is the way human beings image God's love for his created world. That is, two become one and yet remain two. You do not lose your individuality when you get married, and yet you are bound to one another in a communion. God desires, and this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians, is that God desires to know and love his, creation, his human beings just like a man and his wife, and he will in Christ. And this also teaches us about what the nature of sexuality is. Freud and our culture teach us to think of sexuality as you have a pre-designed set of desires or predilections, and you find someone who will meet them and do them for you. Right? You are a being that's looking for someone who's compatible with you sexually. Right here at the get-go, it's exactly the opposite. Sex is an act of self-giving love, a free self-giving love for the sake good, good of another that is creative. I mean, think about this. Did God have to make making more babies involve love? No. He could have made it as connected to love as going to the bathroom or eating or anything like that. But God bound the creative power of reproduction to love, to the relationship that he created human beings to experience, to know, and to speak about. See, marriage is is, is a portrait, a picture of God's nature and his desire for his human creatures. And it one that bears the very creative power of God. For the recognition of another in love, it's essential to human nature. It's essential to being God's image. And that means recognizing the image in people that you don't like, by the way. Not just your spouse. Bearing God's, and this gets us to the other place, that's not taught directly in the text, but it's used by this text, or used, the image of um, the words are used elsewhere in scripture to talk about this next point, which is that bearing the image of God implies that human beings have immense ethical value. Immense, unique ethical value. Genesis 9.9 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The idea of justice, the idea of, of, of dignity, are built on this idea that human beings are different from cows and pigs. Not by virtue of their chemical makeup, but because they bear God's image, and therefore you can't eat them. You can't treat them like cows or pigs because they bear God's image. Nor can you speak about them like they're cows or pigs. James says in James 4, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father and we curse people who are made in his image. And brothers and sisters, this, this is the hill that is worth dying on in our modern age. That human beings are created with the unique dignity and value that comes not from their, their works, not from their, what they do or don't accomplish, not from their race, not from their country, not from whether they have been born or not, but by virtue of bearing God's image, all human beings have an inestimable ethical value. And against every other definition of humanity that, that, that pushes us into little boxes of, of nation or race or political party or class or language, we take up a stand on this idea and say, no, that is an abomination to the Lord. Because the story of God begins where human beings are the ones through whom God relates to his creation, created order. And that means for you, every human being you see mediates to you the God who made you. 
So it means that your words against others, they're words against God. Even if those other people deserve it. The actions that you take against others, those are actions against God. Even if those people deserved it. It means that you never meet a human being who is not bearing the image of the one who made you and the one to whom you will be accountable. To put it another way, every human being you meet is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is one through whom you relate to God. One through whom you rebel or you obey. And of course we know that the story of human history, the story of each of our lives, is a story of us disobeying and despising this image. It's not only done through nations and laws, it's done through our own individuals, through the people that we are given to love, where we put ourselves over them. You've done this. I know you have. I've done it. I do it every day, actually. It's pretty hard for me to believe that other people actually bear God's image because those gods seem like they need to bow down to my God and my uniqueness and my specialness. It's really hard not to put people in categories that give us permission to treat them as less than human. Sometimes to even maim or harm them, but at least to despise them in our minds and value them as less than ourselves. And that is why the gospel is such tremendously good news. Because it declares that, that our God, the one who made us, knew what we would do And he sent his son to bear that image, that unique and inestimable ethical value, and give it up as an offering on our behalf. So that he who shed no blood could have his blood shed by man so that your blood wouldn't have to be shed. And not only this, in his resurrection and ascension, Jesus brought our humanity into the throne room of God, back into Eden, if you will back into the very presence of God and brought with him all humanity and is renewing all creation, bringing us back into the presence of God. And so everything we've just gone through, every point we've made about what it means to bear God's image, this is a description of Jesus. Jesus is not only the royal king with all authority in heaven and earth. He is also the great high priest who stands before God forever, having offered up his own eternally valuable blood On our behalf, he leads all creation in faithful, obedient praise. And one day he will. One day he will. He will renew your body so that it can praise God. He also uses God's creative power of speech to name you. When you were baptized, he spoke and called you a child of God. And so you were. Just as Adam named the animals. His powerful word of forgiveness declares you free in spite of your experience, in spite of your refusal to acknowledge the image of God in others, he declares you forgiven and free through faith alone. And so he's made you part of his bride because it's not good that Jesus be alone with God. It's not good that Jesus be the second Adam alone without a second Eve. And so by his word, he creates and calls a church into being who might be his Eve, who might be bound to him in marriage. And what what Paul's talking about in Ephesians of the Christ and the church being there from the get-go, God wants you to be with Jesus forever as his eternal, perfect, pure, and spotless bride. Because the immense value of Jesus was given for you. Selflessly, because God saw you, forgave you, and loved you. 
So when the Bible calls Jesus the image of God, he's telling you that Christ is everything you refuse to be so that you could become who God made you to be. So that creation would rejoice at the fact that you're going to live forever instead of cower in fear. So that creation could celebrate and share in what God gave you to offer. Or, to put it in Paul's words, to tell you that creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You. Creation will rejoice when you have been raised from the dead by Jesus and made into his pure and spotless bride. That's what it means for Christ to be the image of God. Amen. And may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.